0: I don't know if you read this or learned this, but they celebrated their one-year anniversary while they were in the production of *Haunted Honeymoon*. Wow! Yeah, that's when they had their one-year wedding anniversary. While that's they were just on like set. when
1: uh, when Kyle and I celebrated our marriage by having our honeymoon when orders played in. That's right, Lithuania.
0: It was your one-year anniversary when we. No, your one-year anniversary was when we were in New York.
1: That's also spectacle. true. You're,
0: yeah. Oh, my God. Yeah. yeah. Your honeymoon was when I went to Lithuania, and then your one-year anniversary was we were all in New York for that.
1: That's amazing. For, for a spectacle. Yeah. Nice. Wow. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so <Yeah>. great. <laughs>
0: Another odd bit. I know we're just, like, jumping into things or whatever, but Dan Salad? I think it's Salete. It? Yeah, yeah. I was wondering that. Yeah. Um, same birthday. He's oh. July he's July twenty seventh. Wow. I was like reading
1: I was like, God damn, July seventh. <laughs> so you felt
0: Leo's so, okay, <laughs> Yeah, I, I was like, you know. I, I was gonna say, I'm like when I was watching the movie, I was like, uh, we're getting so ahead of ourselves. Yeah. Here. But why don't like, we just,
1: well, why don't we just start that? <laughs> yeah, 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 okay. Yeah.
0: The policeman isn't there to create disorder. The policeman is there to preserve disorder. Gentlemen, get the thing straight once and for all. We clear the streets along his route, deploy
2: our men, and create an impassable barrier. A gauntlet, if you will. He won't have a chance. I challenge you to a duel. i oh, wow. oh, wow. oh, wow. the truth. This guy's starting to get on my nerves. <laughs> you want to crown them? Then crown your ass. But they are who we thought they were. And we let them on the floor. It's hot. out hot out there. Let's, we all walk out there. very, very, very hot. Open fire!
3: Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Gauntlet. My name is Ryan Saunders, and I'm one of your hosts, and I'm joined here with... Eric Marsh. And... Andrew Stasoulis. This is a weekly double feature podcast where one of us picks a theme, and the other two hosts pick films in response to that theme. And then we run the gauntlet. So this week, it was my turn to pick. And before I get into exactly uh, what the theme is... Um, I wanted to share just like a little story. My my partner and I, Molly, one thing we, we love to do is we watch this game show from the 80s called Blockbusters. Hosted by Bill Cullen. And what we do is we record it from my parents' DVR so we could like watch it on the iPad. And it's funny because Buzzer TV airs these episodes as they were aired. So it's really amusing when we have them recorded and we're able to watch them back to back. When's the show from? It's from 1981, 82, 83. And it's funny, so they, they broadcast them consecutively. And it's really, really obvious that. The shows are all recorded on the same day that they'll record like five because sometimes participants will forget to change their clothes um, and they'll be telling jokes from previous episodes. Then there's clearly just because it was the same day. Uh Um, But then also what's really charming about that is that Bill Cullen, I've never seen a game show like this where he so frequently brings up the fact that they're on tape. And he very often looks at the camera and tells everyone, like, we're on tape. Uh, so here at Blockbusters, etc., etc. So that's how I sort of feel today, talking about this theme, is letting all the Gauntlet listeners know that we are on tape.
2: No, I, banda. There is no band. Il n'est pas d'orchestra. This is all a tape.
3: This episode is being recorded very much in advance of when it will be aired, and it's because I am getting married next week, and I am going on my honeymoon. But you won't be hearing this until well after the fact, and so... Now I'm confused, even. Yeah. (laughs) So I'm getting married, and I thought, like, well, we're going on a little honeymoon road trip, and I hope we survive it. And funny enough, by picking the theme of honeymoon, The Boys today brought me two films about survival, about well, one about surviving a honeymoon. There actually happens to not be a honeymoon in one of the other ones, which proved quite amusing. But um, I guess yeah, let's let's get into it. Um, this was this was their way of sending me off. So yeah, Marsh, why don't you start talking about about your film?
1: Yeah, well, this was really you know the first film that came to my mind was the 1998 film Honeymoon written and directed by Dan Salete. It is uh, the story of a New York City, uh, I guess, couple, or they become a couple at the beginning of the film, and they decide to immediately... Elope and go on their honeymoon. And uh, that's really the premise of the film. Uh, This sort of intellectual couple, sort of marrying, you're sort of like hurrying into this kind of like chaste marriage because they haven't even slept together before they get married. And that's sort of a big part of the film. Uh, And the rest is just sort of like what unfolds and, uh, and what doesn't. <laughs>
2: yeah,
1: yeah. what unfolds and what doesn't. And uh, yeah, so like Dan Salete is a New York independent filmmaker who's been working on and off since the 1980s. He's also occasionally or often been a film critic, but he's also, you know, the kind of independent filmmaker who had a day job and that's how he financed Honeymoon uh, for $60,000 to shoot on 16mm in 1996. 798. And yeah, it's he's a sort of a, a beloved, uh, I guess, figure in, I guess, you know, certain cinephile communities, uh, especially in recent years. He had more success with films like The Unspeakable Act and 14, which came out in the last 10 years, both of them. But the one thing about him, right, is he's also a, a film critic. He's very cerebral. Uh, and I think, you know, you can already tell just like the first impression of this film. This is a guy who likes... Eric Romer and Maurice Pilar, right? And this is a filmmaker who, he is like a Bazinian for real. Like, you know, he's, he, yeah, he <laughs> yeah, I mean, right, it's not, I'm not describing his work as Bazinian, I know. Like, he is a Bazinian, right? He believes in cinematic realism. And I think that's a good, <laughs> it's a sort of like good, yeah, description of, of what this film is, because it's very real, very uncomfortable, and maybe also a little unreal in in some certain ways, and we can get into that. But that, yeah, that's what I chose. I just hope Ryan, you know, learned some lessons from <laughs> from this film that he can apply uh, to his honeymoon. You know, I think we all learned something from
0: <laughs> Salid's honeymoon. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Well, Andy, what, 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 what did you bring to the table? Uh, well, you know, because you chose the topic honeymoon and because this was sort of a celebration, if you will, of, of our work together and, and our lives together as well, I was sort of thinking about you and what I know about you in the years that I've known you. And my earliest you know, encounters with you, I think whenever we started talking about movies, we often talked a lot about, like, scary movies and horror movies. And from, you know, as I got to know you, I, you know, I always considered you one of the, you know, my my friendly aficionados of, of spooky movies, of scary <laughs> movies, of horror movies. So I went a sort of spooky route. Um, I chose Gene Wilder's 1986 Haunted Honeymoon. It's a somewhat, we were talking a little bit about it off the the air, but it's a somewhat convoluted plot. So I'm going to do my best to sort of get us in there. And then as Marsh suggested, we can sort of pick it apart as we go. But uh, in the film, which was developed by Gene Wilder as a vehicle for him and his new bride, his new wife, Gilda Radner this was developed as a sort of starring vehicle for the two of them in this film they play a newly married couple it's a period piece it's set in the 1930s and they are radio stars they're radio actors and it appears that ever since Gene Wilder's character in the film Larry Abbott is his name became engaged to Gilda Radner's character Vicky Pearl he's been suffering from panic attacks and strange sort of neurotic episodes. And a uncle of his, played by Paul L. Smith, whose name in the film is Paul Abbott. Uncle Paul is also a psychiatrist and he's got a plan to help cure Larry Abbott, Gene Wilder's character, of these panic attacks. So they plan to go to the family mansion which is overseen by Dom Deloise, who plays Aunt Kate, Aunt Kate Abbott, the sort of matriarch of this family. And as they get there, the plan is to basically scare Gene Wilder's character straight, uh, for lack of a better term. So Paul Abbott, this, uh, this, this psychiatrist, has hatched a plan with the other family members that they're going to put on this elaborate spook fest. They're going to scare him, and in the hopes that somehow... Uh, this will cure him of his neuroses, of his panic attacks and his neurotic episodes. However, and this is where things start to get, if they weren't already somewhat confusing, as they get there, Uh, There appears to be a werewolf on the loose. Aunt Kate is convinced she's seen a werewolf on the loose and that it's one of the family members, the many abbots who arrive at this mansion to celebrate the honeymoon of Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner's characters. And then when they're there, hilarity ensues, spooks. Uh, all kinds of thrills and spills in fact gene wilder described this very specifically as a comedy chiller and he goes into great uh, detail in many interviews about what a comedy chiller is and i'm sure we'll pick that apart as we move on so that's the film i brought to the table uh it's it's kind of scary but not really scary but it's you know it's (laughs) It's a comedy chiller.
3: (laughs) Throughout the runtime of Haunted Honeymoon, pretty consistently perplexed. Um, I was often second guessing what was even going on. Um, and what exactly at some times was supposed to be funny. Of course, many times it was quite obvious, but I mean, even from the very beginning, and this was sort of my first question for both of you, the film opens with, it's not Dom DeLuise in the very beginning though, right? It's the son who dresses up as Dom DeLuise. So it starts with him wearing Aunt Kate's clothes and a wig, and he's stabbed in the back and he falls forward uh, out of the window, it's like a stormy night. And so his limp body's hanging off, And then his wig comes off, and then he like lifts up at the looks up at the audience uh, alive suddenly again, and he says,
1: "It's not what you think."
3: The camera dollies a little bit to the right, and he gets up again. He's like,
1: "Well, it's
2: partly what you think, but..." Oh, it's so complicated.
0: And <laughs> it's I, a great way to sort of sum up what the film is. Yeah,
3: you know? but I remember um, <laughs> when he first said it, I looked over at Molly, who I was watching it together with her, and I just said, like, I'm not thinking anything. Like, I don't know what he's talking about. And then when he says, well, it is sort of what you're thinking, but a little complicated, I'm like, what, what do you think I'm thinking? And then I was wondering, like, what's the gag here? So I guess my question, not exactly what is the gag, is I was curious what both of you were thinking when he said, it's not what you're
1: thinking. Well, he's sort of, like, ushering us into the story, right? You see someone stabbed in the back. You expect it's going to unfold a certain way with certain players, you know, maybe like a clue scenario. And even, again, the fact it's obviously... I guess the gag is yeah you think it's a woman but then it's a, a man uh also right but you know it's also that shot is a extremely long like opening credits yeah crane in and that goes on forever and when that camera like dollied and stopped and then dollied again sort of comically I was like regardless of whatever was going on with that <laughs> character I was like oh interesting little form here you know um doesn't really yeah. maintain it. I
0: mean, I now. would say, <laughs> I, I would say that. Yeah, that opening. You know, for me, I, I guess I think it makes a lot more sense once you finish the film. Like once you get all the way through the film, because there are these sort of bookends. Uh, there is a lot going on in the film that is about you thinking something is happening and discovering that something else is happening entirely. Yeah. But at the same time, all of it sort of being in your face right there, plain as day. Uh, So as it starts, you know, yeah, like I, I don't know what's going on, but I think that's also what it is. You know, it's in there as a sort of like stinger. It's in there to sort of be like a little prologue, like get set, you know, it's establishing the, the atmosphere, you know, the house, all this stuff, the, the spooky comedy chiller and a murder most foul and a cross dresser. It's like, it's sort of planting a lot of stuff for you in the audience to kind of be like, Oh, I, what is going on here, right? But it does, once you watch it, I mean, I think thematically it makes sense, you know? Because... Oh no,
3: I think it makes sense. I just remember, like, first encounter when he told me that it wasn't what I was thinking. I didn't even know what I was thinking. That was like the...
1: Well, that's on you. you yeah, know? I know, but that's, it was just like a strange... Put some thoughts in that head, Yeah. You know?
3: <laughs> well, I was just like, oh a man's dressed as a woman with a wig and he
0: got stabbed. That's what I was thinking. Yeah. Well, like like you said, it's it's not what you think it is, and it's pretty much what you think it is. Right, yeah, know? that's it's true. A woman and w- a man in a <laughs> way getting stabbed. You right. know? But yeah, I mean, it's it's sort of it's setting the tone, it's setting the atmosphere, and. Man, that atmosphere is really the, I think, on a certain level the star of this show because, man, the set design, the art direction, the the feel for it. like you really do get the sense, uh, as as Wilder had said in many interviews that this film was really inspired by. Um, his favorite type of movie which were these sort of kind of comedy horror film hybrids that were very popular in the 1930s you know he'd referenced like the old dark house uh quite a few times you know i think lines are like lifted from it yeah i mean like i think there's there's, like some
3: direct references so it's clear that it was like a huge influence
0: definitely and i mean like look at his his you know work before this with you know, Young Frankenstein yeah. and, and Mel Brooks and, and that sort of, like, pastiche and homage
3: and spoof. like. And it's funny how he, like, even builds on some of the young Frankenstein gags to you know certain levels of success but it was funny because you know one of the great young Frankenstein gags is after they dig up the body and the cart like breaks and the arm falls off uh, or out of the of the wagon and then like Gene Wilder puts his coat over it and pretends that that's like his hand and he's like playing with the nails he's like well oh, you're cold as death you get he does that more than once in this film like playing with other people's appendages or things as if they're his, you know, and like reanimating them. And he's, he's quite good at that. I wasn't sure if, just the fact that seeing him in two movies, I'm like, was that like a signature of Gene Wilder in sketch comedy or something? Because he's good at it. I don't know.
0: Yeah. I mean, <laughs> you know, uh, Gene Wilder, I think, is is uh, like an amazing, uh, I've always loved Gene Wilder. I love Gene, Gene Wilder. Wilder. Yeah. And, and you know, this movie is, I would say, overall, you know, before, before we're sort of getting into it, like, it was... Was a very, I mean, this movie was a was a considered a bomb when it was released. It was not a financially uh, lucrative film. Didn't really make any money. I think it only played and, in theaters for a week. Yeah, it was not out very long, and and it was also like critically maligned. I mean, like people hated this movie. This movie was like really, for the most part, just you know, ripped to to you know, ripped to shreds or whatever. So that's also part of the reason why I wanted to pick it because mm-hmm. I'd never seen it. And I wanted to sort of dive in and just think like, well, is it as bad as people have said it is? Or is there something here? And I will say, you know, I don't think it's it's certainly Gene Wilder's best film. Uh, I don't think it's it's anybody's best film took <laughs> part in this, but, but I was actually pleasantly surprised. I found it like a really enjoyable film, you know? And I think that's largely because of, you know, the performers that are here, uh, you know, Gene Wilder, Gilda Radner, Dom DeLuise, and just so many character actors that, you know, you've seen in so many other things. You might not know their name, but they're, they're instantly somewhat familiar to you and recognizable. And they're all playing their parts so well. Oh, yeah. Jonathan Price is also in there as his sort of wild, amorous cousin uh, yeah. who, who shows up on the scene and, and has his own designs. Now, as we said, the plot gets kind of convoluted, kind of and, and here's what we should say. There's also, it's revealed that Aunt Kate, uh, who was played by Dom DeLuise, De and Gene Wilder was very specific about this, that when you hear Dom DeLuise playing a woman, I think it's obvious that you'd immediately go to this sort of like campy drag thing. But Wilder was very particular and specific that he didn't want Dom DeLuise to play it purely for camp. He said, "No, I'm casting you to play my aunt.
1: I don't want you to play a man in a dress. I want you to play my aunt, you know." Uh And I think yeah, there's no meta, there's no like meta element to it, which I actually did appreciate. Like, yeah, it's Dom DeLuise, and there's all these like big gags, you know, like him sliding down. Just he's uh, a big guy. Yeah, yeah, they're never going, they're never going like, you know, she's played by a man. (laughs) Yeah, it's just implied, it's just implicit, and I do think that is yeah, like a a good decision. It could be so much worse than it is. Oh, really yeah. could have. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was
3: like nervous waiting for something like that to happen. And instead I walked away thinking like Dom Louise
0: was the best part of this. Like his performance is so funny. Yeah, I mean, and, and it shows. I mean, there's sort of a tenderness between the two of them. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, that's a, another aspect of the, the plot that should maybe be introduced as well. That, you know, after this sort of prologue, it's introduced that she's rewritten her will. And she's going to leave all of her money to... Gene Wilder's character, Larry Abbott, which then gets revealed to all of these other family members who start their own scheming. Because if, isn't it if he goes insane, is that what happens? It's like, if he goes insane, then we get to divide up the money, or if he dies... Yeah,
1: if he dies, I think.
0: Right, so if he, if he's basically, like, incompetent or incapacitated or dead in one form or another, then the money gets split up amongst all the family members equally. So this adds another layer to the plot of, okay, what's going on? Who's scheming? Uh, Jonathan Price reveals very quickly that he's in it for the money. So he's yeah. got his own design. I it. was curious, was... Jonathan Price,
3: the only one who was actively trying to kill Gene Wilder. Everyone else was
1: just hoping maybe he'd go crazy. Yeah, they were trying to scare him to death. Well, yeah. either for. You know, the radio show or For the Money, I guess it's kind of unclear. Yeah,
3: I wasn't sure how many people were involved in, like, the assassination plot. Like, right. For the Money, and I think it was maybe just Jonathan Yeah, D. I Price. think that's what
1: it reveals yeah. at the end is that, you know, there's only been one psycho killer this whole time, and okay. yeah, it was... It was Jonathan And And, and whoever
3: Jonathan Press like, hired the guy to dress up as a werewolf.
0: Yes. Yes. So there's a werewolf. There is a werewolf. And Aunt Kate was right. She saw a werewolf, but it's not a real werewolf. It's a guy in a werewolf mask that gets revealed to us. And, yes, someone kills him. And, you know, bodies do start to sort of pile up a little bit, uh, which adds only to the mayhem that's already taking part. Because you do have people who are sort of scheming, but they're not trying to kill
1: Larry Abbott. No, they're just doing, like, you know, Beetlejuice-style practical jokes, you know, where they're Mm -hmm. just introducing little things to, you know, frighten him. And it's interesting because there's the corollary between the idea of the radio play and the whole setup in trying to frighten him to death, which is, much like a radio play, this sort of illusion that's being put on. And for me, honestly, like, the first chunk of the film, the first, like, 10, 12 minutes, is this fantastic... Behind the scenes radio scene where they're sort of finishing doing their show, they're ushered into an interview, you know, it's like all speed, everyone's running around, you know, doing this this work of fiction. And they particularly introduce a bunch of gags with like the guy who's creating the thunder. Eddie, are you there? I don't see no, it. <laughs> Could we hear a little, hear a little, of a little storm, bit of the storm, please, Eddie? Please, Eddie. Yeah, like a foley
2: artist. <laughs> yeah, guy. yeah, the yeah, live
1: yeah. foley guy, and they're showing all this stuff that goes into the audio illusion. And then later in the film, I appreciated how, yeah, they show you all these, you know, Gene Wilder being frightened. But then, of course, he's also discovering that they are fake or that they're plants or that the arm that comes out of the ground is robotic, you know? So he finds
3: like, noise machines and toys. Right. And masks. So
1: it's all about, yeah, like showing you the illusion. And then showing you what's behind the illusion as well.
0: And a lot of that because of the character uh, Montego, the magician. uh, Yes. This this in-law of his who's a, a magician... Uh, it was really great. Uh, and he shows up and he's sort of got all the tricks. So he's helping everybody do all that stuff. He knows how to rig up wires. And at one point, Gilda Radner's even sort of floating around on wires. But he says when he first appears or he's having a conversation and, and you sort of establish that he's this magician character. And he specifically even says that. It's all mirrors. It's all done with mirrors. And there's that great moment where... He's talking to his wife, this magician character, and he's, you know, they're having a conversation in front of mirrors, if you remember this.
2: What's that?
1: Diamond necklace.
2: Where did you get it? Magic. It's lovely.
1: Everything's gonna change, I promise. So long as you have faith in me.
2: You're a very persuasive man. It's all done with mirrors.
0: And those mirrors, they sort of they become transparent and you realize that they weren't actually in like a bedroom with these mirrors. Champagne. But they're then in the great hall and all the guests come in and it's just a really well done moment of
1: an illusion on top of him talking about an illusion.
0: Exactly. You know, and like movie magic as well. Uh, Wilder said, you know, again, part of his influence were these sort of dark comedy kind of horror hybrid films from the 30s, but he also said, I don't know if you guys saw this in like your research, but he said that one of his major inspirations as well was Jean Cocteau's Beauty and the Beast. Sure, And I think you see a lot of that in the film, in those kind of moments with mirrors, or there's the great uh, gag at a certain point where all the- the, candle, like the 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 candelabras, yeah, mm -hmm. are held by arms in the hallway, which is so Cocteau, that's Mm -hmm. so Beauty and the Beast. And he sort of looks over at one point and sees one of the hands sort of like re-adjust its grip on the candle holder, you know? And again, you are sitting there kind of going, well, how much of this, is there also some like, are there actually all like legitimate ghosts? And these people who are doing their thing and murderers running around. I mean, like, (laughs) it's a lot of plot for an 80-something minute movie. I know. And, you know, Marsh, you bring up, like, the time time frame, too, which is funny because, like you said, there's, like, 15 minutes in the beginning where they're just sort of, like, in this radio station. I looked at the clock at one point and it was, like, this is, like, an 85-minute movie or something like that. It was, like, 35 minutes in when they're, like the family's all in the mansion and they have their like sit down and-, and The aunt, big dinner. The, the big dinner and Aunt Kate like lays everything out. And I was like, man, 35 minutes of an 85 minute movie. It was just getting everybody in here, establishing the characters, which I would say is a very like classic Hollywood thing, you know, like when so many screenwriters came from the theater and and what was the quote first act often in a, yeah. in a play like that. It was Get just, them all into the castle. Right, and everyone yeah. <laughs> has to get established and every character has their sort of like- their introduction. And we find out a little bit of exposition behind who they are. And you we know. meet
1: the help of the big mansion, uh, the yes, uh, yeah. Butler and the maid yeah. who are quite a pair themselves. <laughs> oh yeah.
0: And you know, Ryan, you were referencing, there's a, there's a great gag. The Butler is amazing. I and love the I'd, Butler. I've never n- heard of him before, but his name's Brian Pringle. And yeah. he was this English <laughs> actor, which is a great name, Brian Pringle. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, there's a certain point, you know, this this butler is just a sort of like hard, of, hard, hard hearing, hard of hearing, like alcoholic English butler who has, a you know, a lot of good moments. Like two inch thick eyebrows. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the look in this movie is great. Like there's so much love and care that went into it. And I, I have, you know, I mean, I think it's pretty obvious why once you get into like the the crew and and the people who were behind it but there's a really great bit with the butler and, and gene wilder where you know the butler sort of stumbles in on gene wilder who has himself just found a body and the butler is all like he's also drunk so he's sort of just like but you killed this man you know like how could you and gene wilder's like i don't know what the hell to do to this guy and he's like causing a ruckus so he like knocks him out and he sort of knocks his butler out and throws him in like this like wood pile or something like that and he's, he's trying to hide the butler who he's just knocked out two cops who have come to the house to sort of see what the heck is going on show up and Wilder is caught in this moment and it's so hard to describe something like this I mean it's it's like such a visual gag right? Yeah
3: it's like Gene Wilder is like inside the crate with all of the logs and the butler is also lying in there but his legs are spilling over the edge and Gene Wilder is like lifting himself up so he is aligned He's straddling with, the legs. He's aligned with the legs and the cops come down and they say like hey you you keep sitting right there and then that's how Gene Wilder realizes like they think I'm sitting. They
2: think these are my legs <laughs> so- he
3: like adjusts his his um his robe and like moves his arms and then yeah he's doing like a cute little gag where he's got like little legs cuz it's just
1: below the knees yeah
0: and then, of course, I'm sure you can imagine where this is going. The legs have a mind of their own, and they start to do things. And while well, the, the butler to...
1: keeps waking up, and Wilder keeps having to like knock him out, yeah, uh, when With... the cops aren't really like paying attention, while <laughs> right. <'Cause, like>,
3: yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, maintaining like,
0: a very casual sort of yeah. And every attitude. time he's like whacking the butler behind them, they're like, "What are you doing?" He's like, "Rats, yeah. rats, damn rats." I mean, it's 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 a classic bit. I mean, yeah. right? But but something that I found very interesting, I watched an interview with Gene Wilder and the interviewer brought that scene up particularly and was like, how did you guys work that out? And blah, blah, blah. And Wilder said, well, first of all, it was something that he took from another movie. And he said it came from a movie, which I've never heard of or seen, but it's a movie called Murder He Says. And he said, Fred McMurray did the exact same bit. And, and (laughs) so, you know, again, Wilder just loves this movie is really a testament to like everything he loved. And you know, that's what he says, you know, he's recycling bits from his movies, Movies he's made, movies he's seen. But anyway, what's really great about that bit beyond, like, its source material is how they pulled it off. And he said to the actor who plays the butler, uh, Brian Pringle, he said to him, we're not going to work out what you're going to do with your legs. You know, he's like, you just do what you want, when you want, and I'll work with it. And they impropped it, you know? And again, when you watch it, like, that's, again, like, he's the magic those of
1: it. legs. He oh is. yeah, he really and, is, and he yeah.
0: he he's surprised and he's reacting to it, and it's it seems so, it's just it works so well because of that.
3: That's funny to know that that's the case because he, whenever a leg moved up or did something different, he paused just long enough to convince me of that very fact that he wasn't expecting the leg to do that because he was clearly deciding in the moment what his next gag would be. So yeah, it was, yeah, it was extremely clever and it works. It's very charming.
0: Yeah. This movie is, is kind of messy and at times very uneven, but I think Jonathan Price even said, like he said, normally when you work on movies, you know, a lot of times, you know, you do your scene and everybody goes back to their trailers. And he said, they were all just hanging out. You know, they were all just sitting around and talking and laughing. And he said, Dom DeLuise was often entertaining everybody. It, it has that feel, I think, when you watch it, that like it's a, a labor of love and it's a testament of love because this was a project that Wilder built for uh, his his new bride, Gilda Radner, who's an amazing talent. We've been talking a lot about Gene Wilder, but I think it's also important to to talk a little bit about Gilda Radner because she's the other sort of part of this. And And I think, you know, I think just like how talented she was, how popular she was as a comedian, as a performer, uh, being part of like the original Saturday Night Live and before that Second City in Toronto. And then, you know, eventually transitioning into to films and stuff like that. But she's also just such a great talent and she's like in on everything as well. So like you just, you get that feel that this is just a family movie more mm-hmm. or less you know people working together
3: yeah i mean when the film ends and it's revealed that the whole film was also like a radio production and a play You can sense that camaraderie at the end when then like you see them all hanging out in the radio room and then Dom Luis like has a flub. He says the word pissed instead of passed. And then everyone in the room is like laughing and giggling and then, you know, they end the show and they go off to get married. But yeah, all of them like hanging out and laughing, it felt really genuine. Mm -hmm. And it's clear that, you know, they were all having a good time while they were making it. And yeah, I do think, you know, like Gilda Radner, I feel like so much of her legacy is sort of just being remembered as having died. So young, you know, like this, like bright star. And then like three there she years, went.
0: three years after this movie was made.
1: Yeah, there is a, such a comfortable rapport with them that it's just really easy to just enjoy watching them together, driving to the to the castle, whatever, playing, you know, the gags out with the different rooms in multiple scenarios. And I really liked towards the end when it's revealed that uh, Gilda's character Vicky Pearl. It's revealed that she's in on the gag and she's like doing like a wire act where they have her up on these ropes and she's in her wedding dress uh, just being like, yeah, we're very like sarcastic. She's like left up there hanging uh, as things sort of go haywire.
2: Vicky! I gotta go to the can!
0: What do you want me to do? Hold still! Hold still. Just hold still.
2: Alright, this is gonna be some wedding. A looney for a husband and Peter Pan for his wife.
0: And then later, I don't know if you caught this too, Marsh, but at the end, when they were in their car, so as the film ends and it sort of revealed like, oh, it was all a thing and they they really did get married. Again, that's also what's confusing is that like there really was this couple, Larry and Vicky, but uh, that was all a radio play, but they still were two actors getting married. They're driving away in their car at the very ending, which is sort of like the epilogue, and they're singing a song together in the car. And I was like, God, that song sounds so fucking familiar. And apparently, it was from a Lubitsch film, uh, Monte Carlo.
2: Sometimes, in small ways, we may not agree, but we will weather hardships together. Wait and see.
0: You know, the reason why is because part of his inspiration, he said, was like he was laying in bed with Gilda Radner and they were watching uh, Monte Carlo. And he said at one point he looked over at her and she was just crying, like, because she just thought it was such a beautiful movie. And he was like, oh my God, this is so sweet. So I think that's why they added that just as a a thing, even between the two of them. Like, we love this movie. We shared this movie together. And so then when they're driving away, again, it's almost like it's almost corny in how, like, earnest it is, how genuine it is. And to be honest with you, I think that's part of why this movie kind of failed when it came out. It's so earnest, unlike the stuff he did with Mel Brooks. I mean, even something specifically, right? Like, I guess you'd easily compare it to like Young Frankenstein. I mean, this movie comes out in 86 and it is not playing this stuff for
1: irony, really. It's it's so earnest. It's It's like so and deliberately creaky. I mean, he's like self-consciously making, attempting to make a James Whale type film in the 80s. And like, what's more incongruous with culture in the 1980s than James Whale. The same
0: year that James Cameron's Aliens came out.
1: (laughs) I mean, right? It's 86. Well, and I guess like that's, you know, for what this film, I guess, like lacks in cohesion and coherence a lot of ways, like their relationship comes through and, you know, even beyond like the fact that it literally ends with like a freeze frame of her. Right? She's the last credited person and mm-hmm. freeze frames on yeah. her. Uh, but yeah, like it really does come across as, yeah, like a, it's like a wife guy film, you know? It is.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh,
1: yeah, And like that's the vibe more than anything. Because yeah, like I can see why I guess maybe people were hostile to this, to this film. Only in the sense that like there's a big problem where they like don't really establish a baseline reality. Or really even a baseline plot because the plot sort of like turns into a couple other plots or folds into one and like other nothing is resolved in the other strands but the fact that it's like yeah is this a radio play is this happening to them but then it's revealed that it isn't but it is and like it just like can't you know there's no there's no nothing to latch on to but like on the flip side I actually you know just like really appreciated this double feature because one film is like relentlessly striving for the real and another this other film Haunted Honeymoon does not give a shit at all. Yeah, right. right. It's about doing gags, calling back to Wilder's favorite movies, like you know, loving his wife, and that's uh, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. as good a reason to make yeah. a movie and as Emmy, right? <laughs>
0: yeah, and honestly, like that's that's so funny, and and I get a, a great like connection between the two because. Like in interviews, Wilder had said about like what he cares about in movies. He said like realism has never interested me, right? Like he's not interested in naturalism. He's (laughs) not it, right? Yeah, and he said it. You know, he's like I'm into fantasy or things beyond fantasy, even, right? He's like because you can make a fantastic film, a fantasy film that's sort of rooted in an attempt at like psychological realism. So this is even different than that. He's like it's not even like fantasy. It's just like. I mean, the movie opens with somebody breaking the fourth wall, you know, like there's he's there's it's all over the place. There's no rules, right? And then the fact that yeah, it ends in like a almost like a practical, it's all a dream, right? I mean, it's like it's kind of infuriating, I would imagine, audiences like who just aren't like into that, right? Who aren't hip to that. And and I think like, yeah, in the in the you know, Reagan 80s, like this thing probably felt like it was 50 years old, which it it's supposed to be, right? But I do want to say also, you know, something because, um, you know, again, in terms of the look and the feel and the the production design, the art direction, this film was co-written by, you know, he called him his writing partner, Terrence Marsh. No relation, right? No. No relation. Yeah. <laughs> but I don't know if you guys know this, but I like I was like Terrence Marsh. The name sounds so familiar, to me. I had to look Terrence Marsh up. Do you know who Terrence Marsh was? Did you do you know who? The, no. Uh, he was a production designer. He wasn't a writer. He only had like two writing credits. And I think they were both with Wilder, this and one other movie, but he was a production designer and he'd won two Academy Awards for art direction. He won for, his credits are insane. He won Oscars for, he did the art direction for Dr. Zhivago and Oliver. Those were his two uh, Academy Awards, but he was production designer and art director on Lawrence of Arabia, A Man for All Seasons, Shawshank Redemption, Green Mile, Basic Instinct, Space Balls, The Hunt for Red October, A Bridge Too Far, and a movie that I know you're a big fan of, Marsh, Juggernaut.
1: Oh hell yeah. This One of the, the great boat movies. And
0: this was the the production designer, the well, art director. It, it
1: does make who you co-wrote this movie. It does you know? make you wonder in like an alternative history of Hollywood, like maybe there should have been like units that were comedians and production designers were the writing teams right because if you're writing physical comedy or gags based on objects and sets and the environment specifically right because again this movie is a besides the radio stuff it is a one location film and so they go all out in conceiving of that location so it fits with the gags right I mean it seems like a, a really obvious partnership to me of course. Yeah, yeah, once
0: you once you realize it, right? It's like, "Oh my god, well yeah, that's what this movie is. It's it's wilder sort of working with the his his friends and his family and the people and doing these bits and and you've got this other half of the writing team that's sitting there going like, "Okay, well yeah, how would we on visualize Dracula
1: this?" and, right, and you know, yeah. other
0: and I'll write stuff that I know we can pull off, or like, oh yeah, visualize this is gonna be great, and that'll be a great bit, and you know, also them both apparently watching Cocteau and saying like, yeah, and it should be like Beauty and the Beast or whatever.
3: Could you <laughs> tell? Was that I assumed it was a real house, but were actually those interiors
1: a set? Did I would know? imagine they're all a set. Yeah, yeah. Oh, so okay. it was
0: it was it was a house, and then it was a studio, and they shot it all in England. It was all at um, well Elstree Studio. Because there's that mm-hmm. moment
3: at the end when Jonathan Price is like. You know, in a fist fight with Gene Wilder, and then he like smacks Gilda Radner in the face, and she falls and she like hits her head on that railing. And I'm like, that looks like stone. But if it was the set, then it was probably just like plastic. (laughs) But I was like, ooh, like that, that could have been
1: bad. Yeah. And that's like, right, the climax when Jonathan Price like grabs the expensive vase,
0: which I call Chekhov's
1: vase, because they
0: they plant that bit at the very beginning. Yeah. I was
3: secretly hoping that nothing would happen to that vase. that like that would have been the gag that we were introduced mm. to this w- one of three vases yeah. in the whole world, and it was like the centerpiece of the room, and that it wouldn't break. I like thought that would have been extremely funny, yeah.
1: but it does get broken when uh, <laughs> yeah. when yeah, Dom Deluise uh, shoots. Jonathan Price in the in like the back with a shotgun. Yeah. Shock and then <laughs>
0: laments it, you know, and says like that vase cost me fifty thousand dollars. <laughs> there are only three in the world. And then the butler comes in
1: two in the world you
2: know (laughs) (laughs) know? super
1: good I, i was also you know kyle pointed out i was i was loving you know montego the magician is played by this british actor jim carter who's famous for being on downton abbey but he's famous to me for playing the father in the flashbacks of *The Singing Detective*, yeah. and he's the <laughs> singing father in the bar during World War II, with the huge nose and the sort of like weird, gentle kind of demeanor. But yeah, he's he's a he's a joy. Uh, oh yeah. in, in this especially,
0: and yeah. he's in another great spoof sort of throwback homage film that I loved growing up uh, with uh, Val Kilmer called Top Secret. Did you either? Oh, yeah. Yeah. He plays one of, like, the French Resistance guys. Of he's course. like You know, <laughs>
2: Leclerc or something like
0: that, whatever his name is. You know, they all have, like, funny, like, French names or something. But, yeah, that was, like, my growing up exposure to him. So he's always been in my my heart as well. And I love Singing Detective, too. Which, yeah. You know, <laughs> if there's someone we can work in... You know, at least like an episode or two of the singing detective. Oh
1: yeah, we should yeah, we should do that. I,
0: I really <laughs> know.
2: You always heard the one you love.
0: But, you know, again, like, I I would say to anybody that's, like, interested in watching this movie, it's sort of like, yeah, if you kind of know what you're getting into, and and even though none of us had seen this before, I think knowing the talent involved and stuff like that, I think we all kind of went in, I mean, I know that I went in just sort of being like, all right, I know people say this is, like, dumb or whatever, but, like, I had a really, like, good time with it, you know? Yeah, like, I, had I fun. Did you guys have, like, a favorite gag in it? I mean, the legs bit is it's really funny. A- amazing, I think. For me, you know, that's a highlight.
3: I love the recurring gag that when they first arrive at the castle, Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner are, like, talking about the butler, and he can't hear them, um, very well at least, so they're, like, swapping little secrets, but then the butler chimes in, like, what did you say? And Gene Wilder covers by saying, oh, my wife, like, she's, she's hard of hearing so then throughout the rest of the film the butler is like screaming oh, in yeah. gilda Radner's ear so funny because it's so it was always just like shocking because he usually enters the frame doing that he like leans in and just like screams in her face trying to be as helpful as he can and is accommodating i, I like that gag i thought that was pretty funny
0: you know for me i was also reflecting on while i watched this um you know i was thinking about gene wyler he always sort of I mean, so many times throughout his career, he plays like, you know, very neurotic characters, you know, sort of psychologically distressed characters. And he does it so well. Like, I mean, he's just always so high strung and and he's often playing characters who are sort of having nervous breakdowns or going through nervous breakdowns. You know, one of my favorite performances of his is actually in... Uh, Woody Allen's uh, Everything You Wanted to Know About Sex, but mm-hmm. we're afraid to ask, whatever the title. Yeah. And he plays the guy that falls in love with the sheep. Oh, if you yeah. Know that, you yeah. Know? And like he just sells it like so well, like falling in love with the sheep. It's so amazing. He's so good at sort of writing characters who are, you know, very neurotic and and he's very good at performing it. And I was just then, like, reading a little bit more about Gene Wilder and his life. But I came across something very interesting that I didn't know about him, uh, which was that at a certain point when he was young, he was drafted into the Army, uh, and he served in the Army. But specifically, he was stationed in a psychiatric ward for soldiers (laughs) at Valley Forge Mental Hospital. Oh, my God. (laughs) Yes. Right? I mean, like, I, I can't help but think... While he it's was It's all there, connected. Like, what, what was he seeing? Like, what was he experiencing? He it's easy with that kind of stuff and that kind of humor to just go, like, completely over the top. But he always is sort of able to to bring it back, you know, to sort of, like, find a sort of backbone, I guess, of these characters that, you know, you aren't just like, oh, this is just... You know, the guy's like, OK, I got to play a crazy person. OK, I just, you know, it's like. Yeah, he's extremely good at that. Like a really
3: good example in the film is when he sees the snake in his room and he starts like screaming. It's like a madman scream. And when they finally come in, he is like completely dialed it back. And now he's like sitting atop. He's like straddling a moose head <laughs> on like, the wall yeah. on the wall. And he's just like in his undies and socks and he's like holding on. Um, but it's that <laughs> great. Gene Wilder type performance where he's screaming and then he's very very calm but he's also extremely nervous and he he does he's really good when he gets quiet and like it's just so funny when like when the moose head starts to like go down and he's like whoa
0: boy steady boy and it was <laughs> yeah. yeah it was another wh- good bit like, yeah another, another good, good like production b- design sort right. of bit that moose head yeah like.
3: yeah it was nice that I I haven't seen a film of Gene Wilder's I hadn't seen before in a long time and it did feel like extremely cozy because he has such a wonderful voice and some of my favorite movies growing up were young frankenstein willy wonka blazing saddles and it's like his voice is just like it's like comfort food to me you know so he he does yeah so yeah i love when he raises his voice i love when he gets really quiet it has a nice rhythm to it um and it makes, and it's funny him doing, you know, the idea is he's doing like a radio show. I was like, ah, I would love to listen to a Gene Wilder radio show, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. It sounds really nice. You know,
0: and I think a, a, an interesting way to maybe even like transition between these two films um, was again, something I read uh, or, or I watched. I watched an interview that he gave on television. First thing she asks him is like, a movie set in the thirties in 1986? Bit of a risk, don't you think? And it was like, he, you could tell he was just kind of like, fuck off, you know, but like, he, he responded so well to this whole thing. The
2: answer to the question is yes. It was more of a risk. It is more of a risk. I don't know what the answer is going to be as far as the box office, But I think that uh, we just have to sing our own song and uh, with our own voice and some may like it more, some may like it less, some may say that's the best song i ever heard in my life and some may say, well, it was nice, but I preferred this one better. I don't know about that. I know my job is to sing a song in this case to make a movie that I think is one of the best that I've done. I think so. And let go of it. Put it out and, and see what they think. I mean, believe it or not, the purpose in making a movie is not how much money will it bring back. That's a byproduct.
0: Again, this movie, you might sit there and go, like, well, this is definitely it wasn't everybody's cup of tea in 1986. Probably in 2021, it's not going to be any anyone's particular. (laughs) A lot of people's like (laughs) cup of tea, right? But it, it led me to then think about like. Also, the other film we watched, which is definitely not everybody's cup of tea, and a very particular film made by a filmmaker with a particular boy voice and a particular vision. And someone, you mentioned a few filmmakers that, you know, Dan Salit is is clearly, you know, channeling, inspired by, you know, um, influenced by as a critic and a filmmaker, and many of those names that you mentioned, and uh, quite a few others that, that I could think of too, are also those kind of go it your own way, make your own film. And oh, I yeah. think that that's like a really beautiful thing. And of course, you know, Haunted Honeymoon being a, a, a period piece, a comedy, chill, basically a 1930s film made in 1986 to Honeymoon in 1998, which is the complete opposite end of the spectrum from a cinematic experience. But one that I found also quite funny and oh, yeah. uh, quite quite impressive, you know?
1: And quite chilling uh, at, t- at times. <laughs> and again, it, right, yeah, because yeah, honestly, it's, it's
0: all naturalism. It's all raw realism, the complete opposite spectrum for what Wilder himself has said he was interested in.
3: I will say that um, Haunted Honeymoon feels more like a honeymoon for Gene Wilder and Gilda Radner you know it was so soon after their marriage the yeah, film the they whole they celebrated the whole their thing, fucking first yeah, wedding anniversary it feels like a honeymoon in the film itself and the film honeymoon feels much more like a haunted honeymoon <laughs> to me <laughs>
1: that's right oh, yeah <laughs> And I, I think, too, the uh, the hyper-specific nature of Dan Salit's Honeymoon is is in contrast to the deliberate anachronism of Wilder's film. So, you know, just a couple things off the bat. This is the second time I'd seen it. I had the the chance to see it at Columbia College a few years ago when they did a little mini Dan retro, and I got to see a print of it, which was uh, awesome. Oh, wow. wow, at Columbia College. Yeah. Wow. And... Uh, And yeah, this time around, just how 1998 it is yeah. like the shots of like email and like the yeah. little like laptop oh, God, Michael has. Laptop, yeah. there's uh, even
3: I was wondering because there's he's like working on his laptop and he's like calling the guy and he's like yeah just sent it to you, you should have it in like a couple hours I was like what like how big what did he send yeah. <laughs> like it was an article right like
1: it's a very good question yeah I, mean, and, I,
0: was like, I guess it is a period piece right, <laughs> right.
1: <laughs> yeah. now right? yeah from from this perspective and yeah just like the sort of like late 90s uh, aesthetic to the whole thing. Because again, so the film centers around these two people, Michael and Mimi. And I do want to note, Mimi, played by Edith Meeks, uh, is best known for uh, her appearances in some Todd Haynes movies she's in, Poison uh, and Safe as well. Uh, And I find her to be just, she's like incredible to me in this movie. She's amazing. Um, So they're, yeah, they're sort of like these... Like, I
2: what
1: guess, do they even
0: do? Like, I,
3: I, I think make, it's
1: like, yeah, they all—it's like the. Do they work in publishing or computers? Well, or he's, something? Ri-
3: he's writing articles. That's what he keeps yeah. saying. He's like sending off, so, so he's, he's in a- like
1: publishing. Yeah. He's either writing or editing, and I'm not really sure what she does either. They—they yeah. they, they don't work together. She but-
3: clearly works at somewhere a little more real, only because at the end she's able to like get him on her health insurance. <laughs> she, like, goes to HR yeah, she, and tells HR yeah, it's she like got an married. like that she
0: goes into. Yeah,
3: so she, like, has a full-time gig somewhere
0: that gets insurance but in I, New York. But I think that... I think that sort of ambiguity is also very intentional, yes. right? It's it, it's that they are just young urban professionals in New York in 1998
1: and, and intellectuals as well, right? right. They're mm-hmm. very cerebral and they're very yeah they're very heady, and that of course is like ultimately going to become a problem.
0: Uh, we should probably point out. I don't know if we've if we've really emphasized like. The, the real specifics of, like, their relationship.
1: Yeah, well, and, you know, interestingly, the, there's a lot crammed into this opening stretch of this film. Yeah, because there's, there's the prologue. There's a prologue, which is a date uh, that Michael and Mimi are on. It's their first or second date. They sort of argue about uh, what it is. And immediately, it's just the first shot of the film, this dark, two-shot from outside of a car Michael in the passenger seat Mimi in the driver's seat and they just sort of like get on each other's nerves I didn't
2: mean anything bad by what I said I wasn't criticizing you at all did you think I was Michael maybe we should just talk about something else for a bit Seem to do this to each other quite a bit. Yes, we do. And start <laughs> sort of banter, bicker, <laughs> yeah, kind yeah, of sort of yeah. Yeah. starting to bicker,
1: and you go, "Oh yeah, right. This is like yeah, this is like a P.L.A. film. Like yeah. we're in a car, we're in a, we're arguing, but it is very like." polite and it is very kind of like repressed as well, well yeah it's, it's very it's, cold it's, it feels yeah.
3: like they're like trying to be at like as much as adults as possible coming to the conclusion that they don't work together and they should just be friends like right. as a relationship they don't work they're like this doesn't work like let's just stay friends yeah. and it's like
1: essentially as if they're like let's shake on it yeah you
0: know and then there's the title card like two years later
1: Right. Yes, (laughs) and she's just gotten out of of a relationship with Tommy, this writer with longish hair, who uh, she meets in the park, and he's just sort of ambling along, and they sort of come back together. And one day, they're you know having a picnic at the park with some friends, uh, and they start making out. And this is, of course, preceded by like scenes of phone calls uh, where they're sort of like. You know, they're just friends, but they're calling each other on the phone, and 90s style, you know? Oh, yeah, that
0: that was one thing. I was just like, oh, my God, like, just sitting there at night on the phone with somebody. And I don't mean, like, you know, a cell phone, but like a fucking
1: phone. Yeah, rotary right? phone.
0: Yeah, yeah, the cord dangling and just, like, remembering that. But it's also important to note that when they're talking on the phone, they're talking about other relationships right they're talking about their you know exes and why didn't this thing work out so that's kind of like how they're connecting as well it's sort of like as friends almost like being like oh hey i'm sorry that didn't work out you know like what are you looking for i'm looking for this you know they're kind of having that just sort of almost like buddies sort of uh, supporting one another in their in their romantic endeavors and then as you said they go to this park then and I think saying sparks fly is maybe too strong a term. You know,
3: like. <laughs> well, it's funny when they're talking to each other on the phone because they're also talking about how all of these, you know, new romantic partners have shortcomings in comparison to what each other they right. offer each other on the phone. They're like, well, you know, she's she's like this, but it's not like you who. X, XYZ, you know, and she's like, oh, this sounds like you need someone more like me or, you know, et cetera, right. et cetera. So it is like they're, they're circling around it. They're talking around their own sort of personal friendly intimacy in relation to other people. Yeah, it's
1: almost like they're, yeah, they're sort of like intellectually dating, but not Physically dating in sort of the way they interact. You yeah,
3: know? but she does, you know, I mean, you know, it is, you know, intellectually dating She also starts masturbating on the phone. When she she's, definitely she's does.
0: Yeah. yeah, she sticks her hand on her pants. Yeah, for
2: sure I just don't think I have enough in common with her She doesn't really have a lot of interests or goals or Does that bother you? Yes, it does.
1: And so after, yeah, after a series of these scenes where they're, you know, sort of bonding with each other, uh, they decide to do something impulsive. And this is very, like, counter to... I think both of their natures, right? They're very like thoughtful, calculated kinds of people. So after they make out in the park, there's like a there's like a really cool short montage where there's like all these cuts to clocks and the time passing and, like, her cleaning uh, and him, like, hanging around his apartment. Uh, And then... It's,
0: like, 5 a.m. to, like, 7 or 9
1: a.m. Yeah, they've both, like, been, yeah, like, neurotically up all night or whatever. Uh, And then they're talking on the phone, just sort of like, oh, my God, I can't believe we we made out, you know? And she says...
2: I'm thinking I want to marry you. (laughs) Oh, my God. Mimi. What? Are you? I do, Michael, I want to marry you. (laughs) Wait a minute, let me. (laughs) I love you, Mimi, you know I love you. I could marry you. (laughs) and that's the beginning
1: of uh, what becomes their yes haunted honeymoon and
0: he says like you know i feel like if you're saying it now i would want to do it right away before you change your mind and
1: she says well give me two hours right and they decide to allow right then and there Right then and there. So they do this crazy impulsive thing. And it's sort of like, yeah, kind of framed at least like you get the feeling that they're like, oh, this is a very like pragmatic thing. Even though obviously like there's, you know, part of this set, the whole setup is like you either buy it or you don't. That someone in 1998 got, got married like this without having sex, right? It's like maybe a little bit of a leap, but you sort of believe it with like the way these characters interact.
0: And I, And I would also say, too, there there's there's almost like the essence of like it, it feels like a dare that they're laying down. Like, dare you to get married right now? You know, it it has that feel. Like there's almost like a a, a, a childish sort of as as mature as they painstakingly establish themselves and their friend group to be, which I think is also like part of the humor here. is like, you know, Salid is is exploring these like young urban professionals who, you know, want to be seen as you know, professional adults, you know, and and people who are very smart and intelligent and thoughtful, and then they are having this sort of like childish like, we made out. Oh, how do you feel about it? You know, like, do you like me? I like you. Like, right. I can marry you. You want to give it? Let's do it. Two hour? Okay, sure. Why? Like, yeah. it is this very kind of like impulsive and playful thing where they both are kind of like I think it's like almost like a game of chicken like who's gonna say no first but neither of them and say no yeah, and they're all
1: yeah they're too polite to say this is like actually a bad idea You right, know. Yeah. well then in talking about
3: like it being this playful game and a dare and a challenge I was curious about the the fact that they decide to do this without ever having had sex together and they make a joke about it she says that, oh, well, isn't this what they, you know, what they used to do? Because he's the one who brings it up. He's the one who says, like, oh, you know, we haven't, I mean, we haven't had sex. Like, and then she's like, "Well, well, we could wait. Like, that could be, you know, that's what people used to do. That was the whole point of this originally, right? And so I... And then, I was and a little then, confused because there's also that earlier email from her where she's, like, talking about Christianity. Is she – was it implied that she was, like, a Christian or was the – I'm trying to remember that email. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah,
0: yeah. Like, yeah. was it really just, saying. like, a
3: a, a game yeah. or, like – I couldn't tell if she actually, like, believed because well, of that Well, she does email. have that
0: interaction, like, later in the film um, with that, but, you know, yeah, the, the Lebanese – the, yeah, the local oh, guy, and yeah. like religion does come up in that conversation as well. Like mm-hmm. she sort of asks him about it. So, though it's there, I I don't I don't necessarily know if it was like an overt
1: part of. Well, like, you know, very interestingly, you're right because it's not overt, but in Salit's next film, All the Ships at Sea, Edith Meeks co-stars as an extremely devout Christian. She gives off that vibe.
3: Yeah. Even without having said anything. Right. I mean, that's you you look at this woman and you think like here's a devout Christian man. <laughs> but you
0: know, but the, the other part of what you said, and it's very important, is that, you know, when they have that interaction, they have that conversation, and it says, Well, didn't people used to do it like this? Isn't that how, you know, they didn't have sex before marriage? And then uh they make another joke at the end of that, you know, follow, immediately following that where and, well, what happens if it's not good? And then he says, Well, I guess then they're just miserable for the rest of their lives. Like, right. that's right in that conversation. Yeah. Right. Which is like far more telling. And I then think it's about... sort of like
1: uh, well, joking, right?
0: Right. Because then she's <laughs> like, What? But that's far more telling about then what we're, what's to come and <laughs> what we're going to see. Yeah. You know?
1: like... Yeah. Because even right. And then it's like, you know, we hard cut to the country roads and they make their road trip from New York City to Eastern Pennsylvania. Very specifically uh, to, I believe, like the Salite family lake house. Right, right? That's where So, he's gone, yeah. yeah, so it's another like,
3: funny rhyme with Haunted Honeymoon. Both are like returning to a boyhood home where they grew up. That's right. Know? I mean, this is like their lake house, but so he's probably spent his summers there, you know. Yeah, but then it's a very important place to
1: him. Yeah. And that's also, yeah, one of the sort of conflicts is like, her comments yeah about the house that sort of like hurt him, right? Yeah. Where she's like, "Oh, I imagine it to be woodier," and he's like, "What is? What does that mean? You know?" Because mm-hmm. uh, yeah. it's like really floral, and it's got all this like wallpaper, very like sixties, seventies. But yeah, like so. Uh, even in, in when they're on their way on their honeymoon, they they pull up in this like old timey gas station, and he's like looking at the map, and and then she gets back in the car, and he starts to like come on to her, and she's like.
3: Please, sir.
2: (laughs) We're married now.
3: Oh, we've come this far. Let's
2: let's stick to the rules. You are so weird, my darling Mimi.
1: A lot of the film is jamming on expectation versus reality right and that's something that even comes up later where she you know is like yeah things aren't perfect i like meltdown or
2: whatever (laughs)
1: like uh, you know i have a bad time with it so yeah they they roll up to the lake house and it's honeymoon time
3: right yeah so he's taking her back to he's taking her to his like family home Um, family lake house but then we get a glimpse into like her childhood too at this weird scene when they're like having coffee or whatever and she's talking about games that she used to play as a child with her family and she's like you want to like see what it's like and he's like okay sure you just sit there Uh uh-oh
2: this is a musical game are you ready i don't know Okay, here
3: goes. And so she just like looks him straight in the eyes, and she like lifts her fist up. And she slowly moves her fist uh, across the table towards him, all the while saying, It's coming, it's coming, it's coming,
2: and you can't stop it. It's coming, <laughs> it's coming, it's coming, and you can't stop it. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming, it's coming. This is terrible. It's coming, it's coming, it's coming.
3: This is an stop. awful game. Um, and she's like, sit down and finish the game. And so And He sits down and then she does. And then um, it ends with her like grabbing his nose and he's like, and now I've got you or something like that.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It is this kind of like ominous foreshadow uh, into, yeah, there's something. So there's something off about Mimi in general, yes. right? You know, she's yes. just like, she's, weird. she's super fucking weird <laughs> dude. And I love that moment too, because then it bounces back to him and he's like,
2: I remember my brother and I, we had this book. We used to categorize all the different species of fish. And uh, sometimes we'd play this game where one of us would think of a fish and he would say, I'm thinking of a fish and the first letter. First word begins with an S. And then the other one would have to guess what kind of fish it was. <laughs> and when you guessed the right fish, the other would say yes. Uh-huh. There was no way of knowing whether the other lied about the right answer. Well, we didn't lie. Well, you may not have lied, but you wouldn't know if your brother lied. <laughs> Why are you trying to ruin my childhood memories? We never lied.
1: You know, <laughs> it's this very strange moment where, yeah, they both are like, "Your childhood game is stupid," and then she's like, "Your childhood game is stupid," or at least that's sort of like the the subtext of what's going on. Yeah, but
3: on. but also like her childhood game it's is not like, a game. It's like haunting and threatening, and his childhood game is like very like loving and trustworthy.
2: God, damn it,
1: we'll wait on that.
2: It's beautiful. You're beautiful. Oh, you're beautiful. You're much more beautiful than I am.
0: But I, I, and I, I would also then add to that, you know, because like right away for me, when I was like watching this and experiencing this, like it was, it was so clear to me, like how wrong these two were together, like from the get go. Right. And I think that's, that's clearly what's, what's being established here. You know, it's like, these two, their interactions are so formal. They're so formal. And even in this moment, that is, I, I would venture to guess very clearly, like Salit intentionally trying to to riff on the whole, like, you know, in so many more typical Hollywood movies and romances, how you establish this like playfulness of a couple and like, Oh, they're so good together. And like, it's sparks are flying. And look at all the sexual tension, but, but, but like, this is constantly like just two people. I mean, you used the word before like polite, right? Like two people just like trying to trying to sort of just like get through conversations and connect and interact and every, every avenue that the other one tries to turn this you know this interaction down it just comes to a fucking dead end like a screeching halt and this is like before they're married you know this is before they've even gone on this trip and it's already like my god the the laughter is so canned you know when he's trying to sort of like laugh at her jokes that maybe are jokes and maybe not and this game scenario they're going through I'm like right away it's just so the, the, the word that just kept coming up for me over and over again was just formal, formal, formal. It was just so professional, almost, in their interaction. Yeah, yeah there's
1: nothing organic about it at all. Yeah, that's for and sure. to give you a little insight, in an interview, Salit said that he started with the idea of the chast marriage. And he just was like, how could that happen today? How could that happen, you know, with today's culture and what kind of people would be like that right so he talked about yeah like reverse engineering that idea starting with an idea of like this kind of romare setup the chaste marriage and then the conflicts that arise and then going like okay now I need to create characters who believably would do that right so again that kind of like office culture stuff especially and just their whole vibe Salit so worked in the computer industry in the 90s so he was like you know had that personal experience so yeah he realized, right, that, like, these characters had to be extreme or weird uh, for it to be plausible at all. Yeah, and he yes. wants it to be, mm-hmm. you know?
0: It is. And then, you know, from there, once they get there, a- as you said, like, it's now honeymoon time. Oh, yeah. <laughs> and, and I have to be honest with you, like, I sort of texted you this, Marsh, you know? And, you know, off air, you know, we, we try so hard to save it for the pod, you know? We try so hard, but I couldn't save this... This feeling for the pot, I had to just at least get it out in a text message. They they get there and you know they're here now. They're married. They're they're in the honeymoon palace, and it's it's time to have sex. And they have their what used to be known in Hollywood as a first night scene. Mm-hmm. I guess you'd call it right. They yeah. have their their first thing together. I. Was squirming. I was so uncomfortable. I wanted to shut the movie off. This sex scene, <laughs> this. Se- I shouldn't one even of say the sex not, scene. It's not a
2: sex
1: scene. Right. Yeah.
0: It's not a sex scene. They're laying naked on top of one another on this bed, and it's like no cup. They're just totally both naked, you know, on on one another, and they're just like, sort of like making out, and it's just. Horrible. It's horrible. It's
3: so horrible. It's, like, really impressive, actually, how well they perform it. <laughs> oh, my God, yeah. Because, yeah. yeah, she's, like, she's doing this, she's, like, not kissing back. Like, she's always, like, slightly moving away. There's, like, a
1: really, like, it's very small. He's kind like, of, like, humping her leg, and mm-hmm. just sort of, like, but, like, not really. It's, like, all very weird, and it's, like, and you know, it's, like, 16 millimeter bathed in, like, blue light, you know, the sort of, like, moonlit honeymoon whatever coming in through the windows bed yeah (laughs) and then and then yeah it it just sort of like pauses and she's like oh i gotta go to the bathroom and she gets up and goes to the bathroom and then they kind of like they try to get back into it and she's like it's not happening yeah she's like are you okay like to him and it's like it's very fun because i think it's important to like know how like it happens because this is like A rupture moment that then sort of like continues to spiral right right they've i mean they've had their tensions building up to this moment but in this moment she's like
2: this isn't working what what isn't working is there something bothering you no i'm okay (laughs) nothing's bothering me well never mind why did you say that no just never mind i'm sorry
1: and okay? he starts yeah. to wonder, like, uh-huh. is, is something wrong with me? Right. And she was, like, just laying there like a dead
0: fish. You know? Right. <laughs> she's laying there like a dead fish. Yeah, he was
3: putting in effort, and she was just on a totally different wavelength. Yeah. I mean, yeah, she just... I mean, it seems like neither of them were... They were obviously both not on the same wavelength. Like, I don't want to, like, suddenly, like, blame her. But, yeah, she was, like... Yeah, she was not reacting.
0: She was not feeling it. No, there's zero chemistry. Yeah. And, yeah. I mean, she, she, she's, like, interrupting it. And then, yeah, as Mar says, like, she... She starts the whole like, "There's a problem here. Like this isn't working." Yeah, and like, she's
1: like, "Yeah, is is there something bothering you?" And he starts to become very self conscious. Oh yeah, and this self conscious element is gonna just permeate the rest of their yeah, honeymoon just and just the, the
0: movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you know, I mean, you described it. I think Ryan, like, going into this without having seen it, I hadn't seen it either, but like from the description. You kind of compared it to uh, Buñuel's *The Discreet Charm of the Bourgeoisie*, where it's like, you know, they're trying to have lunch, and every time they sit down to try to have lunch, something like interrupts them. Now, obviously, in Buñuel, it's surrealism and dreams, some soldier coming in and tell us about the dream, yeah, right. But in this, it's kind of the same thing. It's just going to simmer through the rest of the movie of them now trying to ignite this passion that just doesn't really exist, and it it keeps getting interrupted it it just kind of keeps like just sort of just falling apart in the most awkward way and it's
1: like yeah usually interrupted by themselves and their own insecurities Uh. and and neuroses but also there's a part where she almost tries to you know go down on him in the forest and they see a guy just walking by in the forest yeah and he's like
2: this guy's looking at us
3: let's go
1: Wait, let me zip up my
3: pants
2: Yeah, she She runs like yeah. It's like she
0: just killed a guy. Like (laughs) she's so like
3: mortified. She's like, how how could you tell me that? (laughs) I wish you didn't tell me that. Yeah.
2: Why did you tell me about that? I don't know. We're we're in public. People are gonna see us. I really wish you hadn't said anything. Sorry. It's okay. Let's walk.
0: I mean, like, again, here's, here's the thing. I think that if, if so many people watch this, you know, like we were sort of transitioning into this about like, you know, filmmakers who sing their own song in their own voice and audiences don't connect with it or don't understand it, you know, and, and I think there's probably a lot of people that would watch this or hear about it or maybe watch, you know, so, and, and not, not understand the humor because it is so funny. It yep. is so humorous. It is, you know, people love like cringe comedies or whatever. This is, I think the cringiest
1: oh my God. thing
0: I've ever seen. I'm not exaggerating <laughs> when I'm telling you, like I wanted to shut it off. I couldn't, I couldn't handle it, but that's a testament to yes. like a, as you said, Ryan, like the performances because their ability to be like naked and, and in many scenes naked and like on top of each other. And you know, so many actors have gone on record talking about like how awkward it is to do sex scenes in films. And you know, it's like a really sort of like embarrassing and mortifying thing. And they have to just like have these, these scenes that are, for the most part long takes un-, oh, yeah. un un you know unbroken takes of them like being naked and laying on top of each other and like kind of kissing a little bit and then just not being aroused not being turned on and then having really painful Awkward, cringe conversations about like impotency and like yeah. chemistry, yeah, and and to to just do it with like no escape whatsoever. It is I, my, I,
3: I honestly, I bet it's like way easier for the performers to do those scenes in a single shot. I felt like if they had to, like, constantly reset, like, and try and find that pain and confusion and awkwardness again, it would probably be, like, extremely difficult.
0: Well, this is different than, like, what, you know, so many other sex scenes, right? Oh, yeah, Where of course. Yeah, like, this
3: is, like, obviously a small indie crew. It's, like, you know, there's really just these two actors in the film. There's, like, a couple other people, right? But, yeah, it's clear that the actors are on the exact same wavelength, yeah. you know, even if their characters weren't.
0: I mean, and, and again, though, it's, it's also probably easier to just sort of, like be naked and lay there and then just be like, Oh wow, this sucks. Then to be, you know, being like, Oh yeah, you know, (laughs) you know, really getting into it, you know? (laughs) Yeah. It's a testament to like the actors and their ability to just sort of like take us through those really intimate, and, and really just like mortifying the uncomfortable places and also like Salid's direction like and his understanding of that of like how to bring that to screen and how to take us into those spaces and into that journey because I mean like I think so many people you know we've heard it we hear it from people all the time you know I couldn't connect to anybody or these people sucked or you know and people like they want they want characters that they like you know they want people that they connect to and that they can be like oh yeah, you know, and, and in this narcissistic way, project themselves into like, you know, happy couples and all this kind of bullshit. But this, it's it's like, it has no interest in doing that whatsoever. These are two people that are meant to be here for
1: us to just like,
0: I, I mean... Observe. I'm sorry, I was going to say connect with, but like,
1: Ha <laughs> I, mean, I think like I do think the film, yeah, the film creates, I think, sympathy for them. you feel bad, mm-hmm. they feel bad, I felt bad for them, yeah, I also. You get your, you know, obviously anyone gets annoyed with them, you know, watching this whole thing unfold and how it sort of repeats itself and stuff like that. And yeah, like then it becomes this sort of recurring thing, right, where he like can't get it up and they're just like forcing, you know, trying to like force all these situations. Uh, But yeah, like the visual style of this film is long take, no score, that's another thing, right? I mean, there is not, a, a like, really not a note of music, except right. when they're, like, at a bar twice in the movie. Yeah. There's music playing. There's no music. Yeah, this there were,
0: like, just two like... songs in the credits, you know? And I was like, yeah, it was at the
1: bar, right? Yeah. The
0: two bars that they were and in. And it's like, like yeah. again,
1: it's, you, again, like, all the awkward stuff about being naked or sex, like the sounds, yeah. you get that like so
0: ASMR. It was yeah, like... I mean, <laughs> again,
1: and that's like you know his devotion to making it this realistic thing. Very and wrong. like it, it you know I don't think it would work otherwise. Like the the first night scene is like a twelve minute long scene. Oh yeah, you know it's like kind of a theatrical kind of thing. There's only like three shots in like a twelve minute scene. Yeah, yeah and you're yeah. like, oh shit, like.
0: Yeah, you're stuck. <laughs>
1: yeah. So you're you do, it. yeah, you mm-hmm. feel locked in, you know, from the aesthetic and from the budget and from the simplicity of it. And then these performances just, yeah, they they got you screaming. Oh yeah.
0: And like like you're saying like as it like continues to unfold and we we see it and it keeps happening again. I like wrote in my notes. I was like First it's awkward, then it's uncomfortable, then it's frustrating, then it becomes funny, and then it's maddening. Yeah, <laughs> it's like, that was my progression through all of their attempts and encounters. And again, I think it's like, it's such a beautiful, it's such a beautiful exploration of, you know, a very like, I mean, on on one level, they're like very well matched, you know, because yeah. they both have very similar kind of, neuroses and personality traits but it's like they're they're too similar they're so similar that it just that you know neither one can help the other one get over their shit right right well they, they just both dig com- in
1: they have that conversation where he sort of like you know after they're all this frustration he asked her about her exes and she's like oh yeah it was like You know, this one guy, he just didn't care what I did, and this other guy, like, it was a mess, it just didn't matter. Uh, And Tommy, oh, he would just do anything for me. I could just, you know, say or do whatever to him, whereas Michael is so sensitive to everything, just as she's so sensitive uh, to everything, right? And there's even this, I mean, God, there's so many amazing sort of, like, you know, moments and lines. Like, they eventually do. Again, the whole film isn't just a joke about whether or not they have sex. They eventually do. And, of course, we cut to the aftermath of it. We actually don't see when they successfully have sex. Uh, And and Michael says, I feel as if we passed the exam. (laughs) And she goes, don't say that. Yeah, <laughs> and it just, yeah, and it just yeah. starts off another mm. fucking thing. <laughs> yeah. And it's like every single time one of them tries to say something nice or clever, they're pissing the other one off, Yeah, you know, like low yeah. key. I, I
0: think honestly, like they're, they're, their huge failing again is like established in that um, early scene where they're trying to like talk about their childhood games and be playful. And like, they just, neither one understands the other's sense of humor, right? And they're both kind of sarcastic in their own ways and and ironic and it just like, they don't get it. They they constantly think the other person is serious when the other person's joking and then when the other one's joking, the other person's taking it like personally and seriously so they can never just get that baseline of like, hey, let's, 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 that was awkward, right? But we can joke our way out of it. Like the jokes that either one of them tries to make Only,
1: like, dig them into a deeper, like, hole. And then they become conversations about conversations, right? And that's when, Um, you know, it's couple shit where it's like, but you said this. But, like, but you said this and it made me feel that way. And then you said this and it made me feel that way. And then they're only referring to these sort of, yeah, these disagreements.
0: Yep, yep, I've had those. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. I mean, who hasn't? One name that comes to mind in terms of, like, for me, that just i mean stripped bare sort of raw naturalism is uh john eustache you know oh yeah and i remember uh when i when i was in edinburgh and i came out of a screening of my little loves and we were walking out of the theater and one of my professors uh, Martine bunier this like amazing french um, powerhouse who wrote a whole like retrospective on Claire Denis once, but that's a different story. Anyway, <laughs> we were walking out of the theater and we had just seen my little loves and I was just like sort of shell shocked. And for those who don't know, um, my little loves is, is a, a film by Jean Eustache. That's just, it's like really a, a, an exercise in naturalism about like a boy going through puberty and discovering sexuality and all that stuff. And my French teacher, like I'm shell shocked. And my French um, professor, she like turned around and she went, have you ever seen such naturalism? And I just, like, I didn't even know what to say to her. I just was like, no.
2: <laughs> and then she
0: just was like, okay. And she turned around and, like, that was the end of the conversation. And, like, I felt that same thing when I was watching this, where it was, it was so, so real. It was so raw. It was so honest that it was, like, stripping me back fucking bear like I, I i i was thinking about my past relationships i was like i've been in that situation yeah. i've done i you know it's and it's not being played for it's not being like excessively played for laughs it's not it's not like here let's nail the joke right here it's none of that shit you know it's just like these are how these conversations would happen you know like he's also compared to cassavetes and like cassavetes said like if you think about when people argue you know, he hates like Hollywood the way they write arguments because you know, when two people in your typical Hollywood movie have an argument, it's like fucking Perry Mason. Everyone's following the argument, you know, and like <laughs> it's like logical. There's like a train yeah. of thought that you can follow, right? When we all know that when you're arguing with somebody and and particularly a loved one, somebody you're in a relationship with, somebody you're very close with, these things are messy. They don't go anywhere. Like nothing gets solved often. You know, you usually just like argue until one of you leaves the room or like you have to like, like you said, like, d- like litigate the conversation itself. Right. You know? Cause even a
1: lot of the time they're going like, we shouldn't talk about this or we need to talk about this. Yeah. No, or, we don't need to talk about right. this. Or we're done talking
0: about this. Right. <laughs> and I love that, that scene to me, like when I really was just like, my God, this is amazing is when, you know, in the middle of all this and their struggles and their frustrations, uh, she's like, in a fit in like, you know, on the verge of like a panic attack, she's, she storms into the house and she's like,
2: Hey, is there a blackboard in the house? Blackboard? I need a blackboard and chalk. Uh, no, there's no blackboard. Is there anything like a blackboard? You mean like something to write on? Something big to write on.
0: So he goes and he like finds like the biggest sketch pad he can find in the house and he hands it to her and she's like, great, thanks. And she goes outside, she goes by the lake and she sits down and she starts making flow charts. Oh yeah. She starts making these flow charts about their conversations and their arguments and like how to get through them. And it's like, you know.
3: And she's constantly revising the flow chart. She's like ripping out the sheets and writing it anew and then trying to
1: figure as if it's like this puzzle that she can crack,
0: you know? Yeah. Yeah. Like true, false, I'm to blame, you know, like stuff like that. I mean, mean, it's amazing.
1: I've got a screenshot right here. There's one that is, uh, it says in the middle, he is upset. And then there's true or false branches. True, wants to talk, false, no physical contact, analytical slash detached, allow yourself to grovel. He is upset, false, wants to talk, true or false. And just like stuff like that. I mean, it's it's crazy, but we should say, and I, or at least I want to say, what sort of brings her to that moment when she starts diagram? she just like acts impulsively for the first time since they got married in like these sketches and these diagrams she's drawing. But what drives her to this is she gets so fed up at one point and so frustrated with the honeymoon that she gets in the car. She's like, I'm going to go like check out some stuff. And he's like, I'm just going to stay here. And it's really the low point of the movie. I'm going to work on my blue balls. <laughs>
2: <laughs> yeah. No yeah,
1: No kidding. And she takes off. And it cuts to her just crying uh, in the middle of the road somewhere, like staring into a field. And it's this, like, beautiful composition. But then she goes to a yard sale. And at this yard sale, she meets this Lebanese man. And she's just asking him questions about the area in Pennsylvania. Because, again, Michael's brought her here. Uh, She's not familiar with it. And she's like, oh, are there coal mines around here? And the guy's like... No, I mean, wow, there they used were, there, yeah, yeah, there used to be, and he starts just like it turns into a, a, a documentary mm-hmm. for like five minutes yeah, as guess. this guy's just talking. That is a
0: <laughs> real dude, that's not an actor.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, that yeah, guy's no real way. as hell. Uh, and he talks about yeah, his his great grandparents being like junk men after immigrating. Yeah, <laughs> vegetable sales. <laughs> He's bins. like, we're all from Wilkes Bar, uh, and he tells her about these coal mines that are still on fire and still smoldering and what I immediately thought of was Journey to Italy uh, where Ingrid Bergman having similar you know frustrations with her husband goes out and sees these geysers that are like steaming in the ground and it like helps change her perspective on the marriage in Journey to Italy and Mimi has a similar moment where she then Goes to visit these smoldering mines and the remnants of them, including one that's just like some tubes that are caged, just Mm -hmm. smoking, perpetually smoldering. And at that moment, I guess she she comes to some kind of realization or some kind of acceptance with the absurd situation she has found herself in and created for herself. And she storms home. And starts drawing yeah. these diagrams.
0: And then when she she finishes, she like comes into the room and like doesn't show, of course, like doesn't show in the flow trail, but she says to him, like, thank you. Like, thank you for allowing me to be compulsive. And she says, right? Like, it was so it was such an amazing line. She says something like, uh, you know, when I get really worked up, when I get really emotional, like I allow myself to be as compulsive as possible. And that calms me down. So she says it's very relaxed. It's very relaxing, right? Yeah. to Like to go into this, like this extremely compulsive behavior where she's got to like make flow charts to figure out like how to work through a relationship with her husband or whatever, you know, after, as you said, like going and staring at some coal mines that are like still burning (laughs) underneath the earth
1: oh yeah it's incredible and i love too that after so it's like yeah it's sort of like okay well tensions have have calmed down and michael comes home with all the snacks yeah uh and there's this whole scene where he's like tasty cakes these are from pennsylvania uh, Birch birch <laughs> yeah he brings her regional treats yeah the birch <laughs> the beer. birch beer i really want to try birch
0: <laughs> beer like an extremely mild root beer and we should point out again though like in spite of whatever you know that they're trying to now work through again and her trying to be on her best behavior she keeps making comments about everything like this poor guy he's so like earnest with this like I have got all these cute little treats and birch beers, and she's I like, "Are they really? Them. Are
1: they made here?" And he's yeah. like, "I don't know. You know, we always he's use like, them what's here? She's, yeah. she's yeah. like, "Oh, she's like, oh yeah. I, well, I've
3: seen these in New York." He's like, "Yeah, but they're just like everywhere here. This is all." I <laughs> really yeah, <eats.">
0: She's <laughs> like, "Can you really only get these here?" He's just like, "Well, yeah, I guess you can some places. You know, it's like it's poor guy. You I know. know he's just trying. He's trying to." Everything he's trying to like latch on to and, and save thing for her. Like she tries to latch on to certain things. Mm-hmm. And my, my favorite, ex- pick my up favorite on
3: exchange it. in the film is the one of the weird like artifacts of his childhood is that there's two garbage cans in the house. Wet one, and dry. Wet and dry garbage. And she's standing there with this carrot.
2: Which garbage can does this go in? What is it? A carrot. Wet garbage. But it's completely dry. Yeah, but it'll rot. So what means organic, really? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. I feel like wet garbage. <laughs> yeah. And then she I was like, <laughs> oh that's
3: real, you know.
1: Yeah. All right. Yeah, because I mean again, it's like they, they come, you know, it seems like she's come to this sort of understanding or acceptance and is like, you know, I'm gonna do sort of like internally I'm gonna do better, or I maybe have this worked out a little better. Uh she's thought about it, she's analyzed it, she drew the flow charts. And then they go to a bar, uh and again it's like The same stuff happens again when Michael makes a joke and he says, uh, let me just concentrate on surviving this honeymoon as a sarcastic remark. And then she goes, you know, she, she takes it very harshly and she goes into the bathroom and cries. And then they go back to the house and they have sex. And then it just cuts to them saying goodbye to the town. They're like up on this hill overlooking eastern Pennsylvania and it's, you know, it's it's a point to bring up too, is like she has, Mimi has extremely low self-esteem and that's like, part of you know her problem right uh and so they're like they're looking around you know and they're like oh this is so beautiful and she's like yeah i'll I'll miss it i had a good time and she's like saying that earnestly and he talks about he's like oh we used to come up here in high school and drink beers and stuff and she's like oh i wish i i wish i could you know i wish i knew you then and he's like i wish i knew you then and she's like no I was a fright in high school yeah, and you're playing like that punching oh. game. Yeah. Whatever. And you're <laughs> like, Oh shit. Uh, and then they sort of embrace, uh, sort of embrace. Well, no, they do. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. A they a lot of sort of embrace. Yeah. On, yeah. <laughs> no, I like that. Yeah. yeah. You're they embrace. And, and then Michael says,
2: you're the most exciting person I've ever met. No one else even comes close.
1: Yeah. And she
0: is, yeah, and she's the complete opposite of what I would call exciting. I mean, right? It's, and again... same thing with him, though. I don't want to make, again, like, this is all about her. No. Because, like, he's also kind of a no. dud. Like, he's they're a nice guy. He's a, he's a, a dud, dud, yeah. You know? They feel like they're perpetually on, like, a first fucking Tinder date. Like, yeah. that's what it feels like. Even at the bar, like, that scene that you described. Like, I was just, like, when I was watching it, I was just like, they're back to this, like, awkward getting to know you banter. They're They're, like... And, and, and it's like, oh, hey. Um, so, what do you think of this play? You know, it's just like they—they—they they, they cannot connect. And what's what's wild is like, as you said, they they sort of reconcile. And aside from him telling her that she's the most exciting person he's ever met and all she all he's ever wanted and stuff, as they're like sort of like, you know, getting over this stuff. Like, one of them says, I can't remember which one, but one of them says to the other, "I just." I'm I'm so glad that we're together because all I've like wanted is someone who really sees me. I want someone who really sees me like you, you know, and I just immediately, as soon as I heard that line, because first of all, it's not like then like, oh, of course, you know, it's just sort of like dangling there. And I was just like, they don't fucking see, see yeah. anything like they don't see anything They can't see when the other one's joking. They can't see when the other one's trying to come on to the other one. They can't see a fucking thing. Like, they cannot see each other at all.
1: They're not seeing what we're seeing, I'll tell you that.
0: Oh, Oh, oh. without a doubt. It's like, first of all, I don't even know if they know what they really want, but it doesn't seem like it's the other person that's for sure.
1: Yeah, and I think this is also where the film then it once again gets really interesting because the film doesn't just end with the end of the honeymoon, but we get a sort of postscript back in New York City and it cuts back and it's raining and it's grim and she goes, you know, Mimi goes to her work to get hi- him on her insurance. Uh, and then there's a couple scenes about sort of moving in together and including a scene where Michael's playing poker with the guys and they're all like, hey, I hope Mimi lets us play, play poker at her apartment. Yeah. And he's like, yeah, of course she will. And I'm he's like, like, I don't know, man. Don't but he know. also
0: says to he's like it's very small. It's very cramped.
1: Yeah. So like, yeah, they're making this life for each other. Like Mimi runs into her ex-boyfriend in the rain and they have a sort of awkward encounter under the umbrellas. Uh, and then it, the film ends in their apartment together. Uh, and they're, You know, he's up late typing an article and she's just going to go to bed. uh, And then he comes in and it's like they start a little argument. She wanted to read the article before it was done, but she hasn't. And again, there's these tensions sort of surfacing. And then the film ends on this extremely ambiguous note where Mimi looking away from him. She's lying down in bed. He's sitting up in a two shot And she says,
2: I love you so much. I can't tell you how much.
1: And he just turns off the light. And that's where the movie ends. I think to each their own interpretation of uh, the Mimi and Michael saga. What is going to happen to them? (laughs) Certainly the honeymoon wasn't great.
3: It wasn't, but it was also, like, an extremely intimate experience in a way, Um, and they really did struggle to communicate, but I still feel like maybe some, like, nuggets of information were mined from each other, and they, like, came out a little bit stronger, but it is, like, hard to tell i remember when i watched it last night i was watching it with molly immediately after haunted honeymoon and molly you know for the first time she was just like but then she fell asleep and then when the film ended and she woke up she's like so how did it all come crumbling down and i was like yeah i don't know they they might be
0: okay well again i think it was like you know i'm not gonna say like you know sleep buried the lead but like Remember, like they had that conversation, right? As they decided to get married. They'll be
1: miserable for the rest of their lives. Yeah, that's
0: true. Miserable for their lives. And for me, I kind of took it like as that. Because again, if this relationship now is just going to be this perpetual fucking game of chicken between these two, right? Yeah. Dare you to marry me? Oh, fuck yeah, let's go. It's like, who's going to be the first one to be like, all the bullshit I said that I loved you, you're the only thing I've ever wanted, you're the most exciting person I've ever, like all that stuff. They would have to reveal to the other one that they were lying. That they didn't mean it, that it wasn't true, right? And and they strike me both as very weak people, as people who, like, you know, I don't think it's strong for them to stay together and be miserable and fucking, like, not connect, right? I think it's more a sign of their insecurity, as you said, or their, like, their weakness, or they're just, like their their general like awkwardness so for me it's like i could see them staying together for a very long time <laughs> and being totally fucking yeah like miserable for the rest of their right. lives, and maybe not just perpetually
1: growing apart look with the flow chart maybe they won't even be miserable because again i think like for me if it wasn't for like the big sort of yeah like shift with mimi's character sort of like you know after the coal mines and and after the diagrams like she is clearly in her own way attempting to soldier on and to carry through and to save this thing that any viewer will tell you maybe, should, maybe shouldn't be saved or maybe it's kind of romantic that, yeah, she's like, all right, I guess I'll, all right, I'm in. You know, I'm in. And yeah, whatever that leads you to as a viewer uh, is, is what it is. Yeah, you I know? certainly had... I certainly wasn't confident about yeah. any of my assessments. And you have every of it. reason not to be yeah. confident, you know. <laughs> uh, the pragmatic, uh, so-called pragmatic, uh, chaste marriage—you know—the legal contract. Like, isn't it better not to be alone? That is the question, and I'm not sure this film answers it.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, I mean. You know, marriage for love is a very recent invention <laughs> That's right. in the history of humankind. So, you know, in some respects, then maybe this is one of the more classic marriage on film uh, yeah. stories I've ever seen, you know, <laughs> because two people who barely know each other sort of get arranged in their like urban profession, young urban professional friend group. And, uh, embark upon a lifelong union. The rest
1: is history. (laughs)
0: Without having had sex first. And I think that's it too, you know, it's like, there's comments on that, you know, on like the modern age and, 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 you know, that thing, you know, like love, sex, marriage, and what's the relationship with the two. So for me, if anything, I think it was a cautionary tale to like, Make sure you fuck before you decide yeah. to get married.
2: <laughs> yeah, I agree.
0: Yeah.
1: I wrote down, yeah, I wrote down in underlined manners versus desires. You know what I'm saying? Sure. Yeah. You got to get in touch a little bit with your desires. Oh yeah. You know. I mean, full disclosure. I'll be honest. Like, I, I, I can't make a decision about
0: the relationship until we until we get that through. You know, we got to get through <laughs> that first. You know, and then we can decide: Are we gonna work? Are
1: we gonna be compatible? Is this gonna happen? You know, like. Well, it's a very you know,
0: important and healthy part of a good relationship.
1: certainly is. I, I You guys should watch his film, The Unspeakable Act, which uh, has a similar sort of will-they-won't-they they in an incest scenario between a brother and sister. Oh, boy. Uh, but again, it's, you know, having now seen Honeymoon, I think you can see how Salit would, like, navigate that ter- territory with, with grace. The whole movie's not, like, about that, but it is it's the unspeakable, and yeah, he's. I think yeah, I think he's just really good at sort of laser with laser-like focus, honing in on just yeah this extremely unbearable human element. You my know? God, <laughs> I'm telling you, I you know,
0: folks, this is just me talking to you here for a second. I'm not exaggerating. I've never experienced anything like it in my entire life. It was the most. <laughs>
1: <laughs> I was twisting in my fucking chair the whole time. So be prepared for that, you know. Well, Ryan, it was your topic this week. It was. Yeah. We, you're the one who's getting fucking hitched. Yes. So, what lessons do you think you learned from our double feature of haunted honeymoon and honeymoon?
0: Yeah. What are you going to take with you now onto your honeymoon from this?
1: <laughs> well, um,.
3: Compared to honeymoon, Molly and I certainly took our time we've been dating for ten years. So we've had time to sort of mull it over, really, you know, work through everything together and come out very strong at the other end. So um
0: have I, you ever I, made a have you ever made a flow chart to help you uh No, we
3: thankfully haven't needed to uh anything like that.
1: Have you ever had sex?
3: Not yet. No yes, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's what the honeymoon's for. No, fucking little school boys <laughs> um, Yeah, glad I'm not taking her to, like, a childhood home, whether it's, like, a giant British, like, haunted mansion or my family's, like, house with, like, a wet garbage can. Um, I'm glad that that's, like, not where we're going on our honeymoon to reopen all these old family wounds, you know?
0: Keep, keep it I, I will distant say, though, from that. About the garbage cans, it's not a bad system, you
3: know? No, I actually wasn't bothered by the garbage (laughs) cans. I just thought it was a quirk. But there was, like, you know, there was a a specter of something in that home, you know, not necessarily, like, with his family, but more her, like, feeling uh, completely detached from his family and his way of life and his, like, way of thinking about love and relationships. Yeah, and then, um, if anything, Haunted Honeymoon just shows how exciting and fun and lucrative a beautiful romance could be the love of gene wilder's life and look at them just having a blast you know what a delightful romp for the two of them you know and to anticipate your question to Marsh, i was thinking of like i really had a hard time coming up with any other honeymoon films that i that i like i was like god i'm like trying to get, just like racking my brain um and you know i don't have a ton to say about it other than it rips but man the heartbreak kid lane may yeah. that's a
1: one of the purest...
3: One of the purest uh, bad Honeymoons. <laughs> Absolutely. But, um, yeah, it's fucking so funny. If no one's seen it uh, out there, you know, be sure to check that shit out. Charles Grodin, extremely funny.
1: Yeah. Along with Salit's Honeymoon, one of the most uncomfortable films in general.
3: Yeah, without a doubt. If anything, Honeymoon 2 was like another film that um, just added to the list of films that make me really
1: not want to live in New York City <laughs> and like turn into that... <laughs> I'll tell you though that lake, beautiful. The natural light shimmering in the sun. Oh yeah, the lake house seems kind of nice. I'd and hit, I love that, that. I love that guy that she talks to on his front
0: lawn. Yeah, would love to pick his brain. Don't blame the lake house. Like that's, <laughs> Mimi just, could, just couldn't connect. Yeah, yet. Don't, <laughs> don't blame well, she the lake house. She didn't understand what you know. I mean, and that's it, though, right? I mean, because maybe that scene there with the 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 guy, like, just sitting there and talking to the local, like, yeah. was this way for her to like try to connect. And if anything, like you said, it gives her like a small, you know, I don't necessarily want to say like this, you know, breakthrough, but like a small like advance in connection, you know, an ability to sort of just be like, oh, I'm. It's like she's like downloading this guy, you know, and like. <laughs> And you can see it's like the wheels turning in her brain of just kind of being like, you know, can I use this now to take back to this man who I'm married to who grew up here, right? Like from this place. Yeah, because even metaphorically,
1: it's like she's like, well, shouldn't you put out the fire? And he's like, nah. sometimes it's just better to just let them burn. And if you think about their relationship, right, it's this moment of rekindling and this moment of let's keep the fire burning. Why? We don't know. You know, the coal mine's closed 40 years ago, but it is it's just on fire, you know? Just like Mimi and Michael. <laughs> yeah,
3: well, this was my week uh to pick. It'll be a little bit before we get to record our next episode, but uh it'll it'll be ready by the time you listeners uh, get a, get around to like, catching up with these as they get released. But Marsh, what is your topic for the next time we gather?
1: Well, I've been thinking. You know, recently I went to my first Baseball game of the season saw the White Sox uh, lose very unceremoniously, but I've got the fever. The White Sox, despite all their injuries, one of the best teams in baseball, and two thirds of the gauntlet uh, is loving it. Uh, the other third uh, una- is unaffiliated. And un
0: American, if you and, ask yeah, me. Yeah, and
1: un American for his disinterest in, in baseball. So maybe that'll make this an interesting double feature, but. My topic is take me out to the ball game.
3: I don't have, like, an active disinterest in baseball. I'm just Shut not, up. like, a
1: baseball freak. Right, if right,
3: anything, right. it's one of the sports I enjoy watching the most. We've talked about this. It's the slow cinema of, of sports. That's call, nice. I'm calling
1: your ass out. You, know, I mean, <laughs> yeah. you can try to intellectualize this all you want. Really. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm talking I want to see movies, you know, the crack of the bat, the roar of the crowd. The getting crinkle getting of the down, cracker jacks. Yeah. That
3: sounds nice. I love going to a ball game three out of three
0: you know you're 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 you're, you're backpedaling a little lot here now you're you're really you're you're leaning into it too hard all right you know <laughs> hey i'm excited all this right sounds great
1: so that's uh that's all we got as always you can follow us on twitter at gauntlet movies or send us an email at gauntletmoviepodcast at gmail.com And we'll see you later. Congratulations. Congratulations, Ryan and Molly. Molly. Thanks, everyone.
2: Well, they're all over the place, really. There's a lot in Plymouth, which is a city right over. There's a Uber colliery out there, which they're restoring now. Uh, We have actually some active mine fires still going on. Really? In Centralia, where on a rainy day you could
1: actually. After a range, you could see the smoke coming out, and in, sometimes on a clear day,
2: if you, if you look, you could see smoke coming out of the ground. Oh, are they dangerous? Uh, they almost had to close the city down in Centralia. Uh, they thought maybe the house would start on fire,
1: but no. Uh, they Most of the people didn't really want to move. They just
2: wanted to live there, and that was their home. And they, they tried to put them out? They put them out. Uh, they're constantly trying to put the fires out, but I think it's just easier if they let them burn out.